do do films to sharpen annoy the public. I only want to annoy the institutionalised monogamous status quo. Welcome to How to Enjoy Experimental Film, where you've just heard part of the soundtrack to Kling Film by Anna Thew, with a couple of comments from the filmmaker Superimposed. This film was made sometime after Hilda was a good looker and Behind Closed Doors, which we discussed in the previous episode. An opening title to this film shows an announcement from the World Health Organization about HIV and AIDS in men and women, but the film itself soon reveals itself to be a slightly more light-hearted affair, albeit making a serious point about sexual health and the use of condoms as a preventative measure. The title of the film is written onto a tight-fitting rubber dress, shown between footage of motorbikes in a conscious reference to Kenneth Anger's Scorpio Rising. The film itself is extremely explicit, containing a number of unsimulated sex scenes and playfully emphasising the male nudity. It references both other films and artworks pointing to fragile masculinity by depicting men in as vulnerable a light as women have almost always been throughout the history of art. In the UK, this major and subversive work has been almost completely neglected, though in the rest of the world it's a very different story. Once shown on British television, it attracted considerable controversy and came close to falling foul of the censors. You dirty buggers. The actual making of the film was censored. We had, we had film, uh, the, the optical people, the first people who were supposed to be doing the opticals with lettering over the film, um, they scratched all the negative. And it was not an accident. It was absolutely... And then they refused to do the opticals. Then we went to another opticals person and that guy kept putting the price up. He was wanting, you know, really a large amount of money for doing this job. And it was like, and then the film got damaged when it was being neg cut. Again, we think it was a sort of... Deliberate. So many things like that went on. And then when my husband went to try and collect the film from the guy who damaged it, um, he was beaten up and thrown down the stairs. So, so there was a, a lot of strange violence going on that you couldn't understand. I was writing an article about this. I mean, what was it? For me, the humour in that film is schoolgirl humour. And the idea was that what we would do is we'd make sure that there was, an, there was, there was less than a 50% exposure of women's bodies the men. It was a strict rule, you know, that there was going to be, that men were going to be exposed here. Yeah. And, and then when it was shown on television, it really looked pornographic because there were so many hard-ons in the film that we added later, people who were obliging. <laughs> and that, 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 those are very funny stories. But yeah. um, also the boys who were in the film, three of those men were men who'd actually behaved exactly as they did in the film. Right. So, so, it, so they've been people who've been very embarrassed about condoms or awkward about them, run out of the room and saying, I'm not wearing one of those. And then Fidian Warman, who's an artist, he came back and, and, and he, he, he couldn't get a hard on with a condom. You know, it was all, it was all true, based on true stuff. 
and and uh, so <laughs> so it was quite apparently we found that we, we talked to teenage girls and it was quite a common thing that if they tried to, so, uh, it's, it's sort of perhaps surprising by from from today's point of view but uh, absolutely there is that scene that I did have to that I did laugh at in the in the film where there's somebody who's presented with a with a condom and and literally climbs the wall or something oh yes and that's a reference <laughs> you see the ref, that's a reference to um Le Son d'un Poète where the little girl goes up there are some references to Le Son d'un Poète in that scene because she's got there's a tinkling sound mm. when the little girl gets stuck to the ceiling and you know, and they have people crawling around the walls. Yeah. And the little girl gets stuck to the ceiling. She's got little bells. Well, Siraj Nelson, the punk girl, she's got this kind of, there's this little tinkling sound that goes on in the background. And Mem Morrison, who's he's now a really, he's an amazing actor. But Mem, uh, the only thing that's wrong about the cut for that is that originally we, we had him upside down. All right. Our shot of him was upside down, and certainly when we're doing the vid, we've had it, we've had it scanned, and I'm going to change that around because he shouldn't really be the right way up. He should be upside down. Ah, right. <laughs> <laughs> but we didn't put him upside down because we might have a neg cutting mistake because the numbers are on the wrong side of the film. Oh, I see. <laughs> it <was a> silly decision. <laughs> it got shown absolutely all over the place. The English, unbelievably, were the least likely to program film. We are a very, very uptight, you know, sexually incredibly uptight, mm. much more uptight than in Germany or France, you know, and, and, and so, um, well, whatever reasons there are for that, which are, it, which probably does go right back to the Reformation, mm. you know, it goes back to things that people no longer really understand. And that's why our branch of structuralism is as it is, whereas structuralism in Germany or, or in America was 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 different, you know. Um, uh, so uh, uh, there is a rift because of that film. You know, it was quite. I suppose it was quite an explicit film, but it was just meant to be like that in a fun kind of way. So the macro lens is what is great fun in cling film. There is a huge number of macro shots in there. Colours of, you know, condom packets, for yes. instance. The flashes of colour. So what you're doing is you're assembling something. There are, th there are different threads for how you're going about it. And with Clingfilm, I wanted Clingfilm to be joyful. Yeah, it is, yeah. I wanted it to be funny and I wanted it to be joyful and I wanted it to be totally pleasurable to watch. And there are lots and lots and lots of references to films like like Un Chien Andalou, because after all, the Tristan and Isolde, yeah. for me, was a reference to Un Chien Andalou, because okay. in the 1960s version, mm -hmm. he uses Tristan and Isolde, and then it's Latin tune. And then the, 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 the titles on the back side are a reference to Scorpio Rising. The Grey Cat is a reference to both Scorpio Rising and and Carolish Neiman's fuses, because in Carolish Neiman's fuses is a great cat. As joyful as this film is, you heard mention there of a rift between this and later films, and there is a trauma connected to this film which has influenced some of Anna's later works. In an incident actually unrelated to the film itself, shortly after its completion, Anna was subject to a brutal physical assault which left her temporarily blinded. 
inevitably this trauma does have echoes in many of Anna's later films, such as Terror Vermin, in which, like Kling films, she collaborates with performance artist Franco B, who is known, among other things, for performances in which physical bloodletting in the performance space is sometimes a feature. Anna herself writes of his work and of the film, Franco's artworks were full of shattered glass, blood-red pigment, cuts, scars, and hospital paraphernalia. He exploited these things. He gorged on this violence, the violence of an attack which I wanted to shut out. It's also worth noting that Klingfilm was made when the reality of the AIDS crisis in the UK was hitting home. Anna lost a number of friends and acquaintances to the illness, including, in the mid-90s, the filmmaker Derek Jarman. Okay, have you, did you see Fragments for Eye Drift? Yes. Because that's one of my ones that I, you know, when I look at it, I think it sort of says, it says through images what you're wanting, or you're not being literal and saying, oh dear. Uh, Darren's found out he's HIV positive and, and I'm trying to get over being having been attacked. You know, we have these slight personal traumas and we're helping each other. And how did we help each other? By filming close-ups of plants. You know, how does that resolve itself? Because we were both very down and we were on holiday and, and, and somehow just making the film and filming nature, filming beautiful things, filming fruit trees, yeah. Um, you know, leaves, all of those things. They, 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 they make a kind of wholeness. Uh, and and I, uh, the one thing that I did, what did happen in my mind, which I probably wasn't really, and I was I planning a very, very, a very serious film and I never couldn't get funding for it, which was actually about what happened to the mind after, you, after I'd been attacked. And I went to Dresden um, after I'd been, it was a year after I'd been attacked, and I had the most terrible nightmares of um, burning cities. And I, then that's when I realised that, oh, God, I'd seen a film called Feuersturm über Hamburg um, that Ron Lane showed. He managed to get it out of the War Museum and showed it. So what I did was I did some research and tried to find out where this film was, where I'd seen burning bodies. And then I remembered Sheffield as a child. And at Sheffield, when I was, well, I think right up for quite a long time, the centre of Sheffield had large buildings or just with a single wall with black. And of course, all the buildings were black and with windows so that you could see the sky through. And actually in Dresden and in Halle, there were still buildings like this. In the nineties, in the nineties, and they were just beginning to tart things up, and the the Frauenkirche was completely. They were just beginning to do the renovation of the Frauenkirche, and and so I, I started making these connections and looking into films of war, and then I found this film Sheffield at War, and I filmed off that. So some of those, and I never ever actually kind of got the film that I was going to do done. A film that was made shortly prior to Klingfilm also addressed the AIDS crisis, but in an altogether darker way. 
Eros Erosion focuses on losing loved ones in a variety of ways, featuring voiceovers from recently bereaved friends and excerpts from Boccaccio's Decameron linking his writing about the plague of 1348 to the hysteria surrounding the AIDS crisis in the 90s. It is one of Anna's most heartbreaking works, and one that actually had me confessing to the filmmaker that I found it very difficult to finish viewing due to the sheer emotional punch of this work. With Eros Erosion, we had difficulty with Eros Erosion because we couldn't afford subtitles. It's quite expensive to, to subtitle a film because mm. you have to burn the things into the print so you've got to have a special print made. So you're into a, a thousand quid or more. So Eros Erosion was a problem to show to a foreign audience because you have to have such good English if it's not sound sync. If you've got dialogue and you say, oh, get out of here, get out of the room, I don't love you anymore. Well, somebody can actually understand that. But if you've got somebody muttering along on the soundtrack in head thoughts, you can't understand however good your English is. It would not get shown. So in the end, what we did with Eros Erosion, we translated large amounts of the text and had little handouts, like a collage, of the things that were being said over the film, and that actually worked. But with Cling Film, it was a conscious decision to not have very much English in it at all, to have hardly any language in it at all, and to try and just get over this idea, can you in half an hour persuade people to change their attitude? Which I believe you can. And one of the things that was, was quite funny about Cling Film was the number of times you had young men coming up to you afterwards and telling telling you about <laughs> about how you know condoms didn't fit them properly. And I'd I'd get really quite embarrassed. You know, and they'd <laughs> they'd come and quietly talk to you about their difficulties with with wearing condoms as an excuse for why they'd never worn one because they sort of felt slightly bad that you know they should have taken on that role. But <laughs> doing a public <laughs> service, though, <laughs> it was it was. That was quite funny, really, I have to say. But it it, um, it it got shown around almost everywhere. It was refused from almost every film festival in Britain. So it got in Britain, it, it didn't get anywhere. Mm. It didn't get into Birmingham, to Tyneside, to London. Well, London, it got shown in its in a rough cut stage by um, by Cordelia Swan. And that and then I almost didn't get the money to finish it because Dave Kess was so furious because that version was much naughtier. It had a lot more naughty things. <laughs> naughty and nice, Anna's works in film and video have also included expanded cinema pieces that have been shown in gallery spaces, such as the multi-screen Blurt for two projectors and video monitor, the aforementioned fragments for iDrift, and a multi-screen companion piece to Demolition called Broken Pieces for the Co-op. But artists often have some issues with gallery works, and Anna is no exception. I mean, I was very anti-gallery. It was difficult about the gallery thing, because I didn't really want... I, I really didn't like the way in which film was being drawn into the gallery, because at the stage when we were making the films in the 80s and 90s, there was an immense concentration on sound, because you had a horrible acoustic, mm. you've got people clumping around as a you know you might have a division of the space with some hardboard you know panels and that is going to be acoustically most unpleasant and you've got people clumping around and chattering on the other side of a wall then for instance in the ccc in the, no in macba in barcelona 
they had Ulrika Ottinger's film showing, the dwarfs film, Zwiegen. And they built a kind of cinema space with black walls and lots of little soft chairs. And there was a big uh, sort of cloth curtain. On one wall next to it, there was Benet Rossell's piece, which had sound on it. On another opposite, opposite on the other side, they had Vito Acconci. And the sound was coming through speakers sitting on a chair that you know you'd pick the speakers up, but you could hear the different sounds coming out of his videos, loud enough for you to hear if they weren't they weren't having anybody listening to them. So you got this cacophony of sound in the gallery. In the next room, you got Lucio Fontana, and accompanied by this cacophony. Mm -hmm. So for me, the gallery is acoustically not suited. A gallery. A gallery, what does a gallery mean? A galleria in Italian is a tunnel. You know, the Galleria Uffizi. The reason it was called the Galleria Uffizi is because of that long gallery where you have the big history paintings. And so that is acoustically not very good for a sound piece. So you have this problem when you're showing films which are interested in sound. And you also have the problem with people walking in and out. And when, when I showed... Fragments Rydrift, <laughs> had a row with Franco. Franco was uh, curated this thing at the Galleria Pack in Milan in 2005. And he had painters and sculptors, and then he had, uh, he wanted to have Fragments Rydrift and then some drawings. And I designed a kind of space where I had sort of gray plinths for monitors and then gray benches. And, and arranged it so you could sit and have a very heavy rubber curtain so that you wouldn't hear the sound. He, got, he wanted people to stand, and so we had this row. He said, you can't have benches, I want people to be able to stand. So, but what I did with that film was put titles on the front of it, and what you hardly ever will see in the gallery are credits at the end. And I put the title on the front and the credits on the end so that people would know this is a piece that has a beginning and an end. And what actually happened is people behaviorally, they just saw from the first frame, ah, oh, it's a film, it's got a title. They sat on the floor. They didn't have the benches to sit on. They all sat on the floor and they all stayed for the entire thing. And if somebody came in, they'd go, you know, you know, because we're listening to the film. So they're concentrating. And so my difficulty with the gallery space is, is um, is, is just that it is not really suited for what we were actually beginning to try to do with film. We were not making silent films. We were beginning to experiment with sound quite in a, quite a big way. Uh, it, I, there is a difficulty with putting films on in galleries. What I think happened was that by the time you've got to the late 70s, you've got, the, you've got video starting to come in. You know, it was beginning to cost a little bit of, you know, if you wanted to use colour, which I like colour, so if you want to use colour film, it's going to be expensive. By the time it gets to the early 80s, it's beginning to be not like your, just your pocket money. And that's why people were beginning to use Super 8 and they were beginning to use video. So very many of my friends, like in my, in my first film, Lost of Words, the, the bit where I want to have Yehuda Saffron talking uh, with Jock McFadden, and uh, Jock is uh, interviewing the last man on earth to read and write. And Yehuda Safra was my thesis tutor at the time. And, and to do that kind of thing, which you might 
record for an hour or two hours. You could possibly do that on film. So what we did was film it onto video and then copy the bits. Once you edited the bit you want, you then film it onto film. That was something that students at St. Martin's did for quite a long time. They'd film their Super 8 or they'd film, they'd film Super 8 off onto video and then they'd film, film things on video and then film off the video with the, with the Aeroflex. So there was a swapping around of film and video, which I think very many people don't um, recognize. A huge part of Anna's work, among others who make experimental film, is teaching. And I was interested to hear if Anna felt there was a great difference between the educational environment in which she grew up and how she sees it now. What makes my, my heart break is that, that students have to pay so much money now to go to the college. And in that period that we're talking about where everything was lively, lively for a very good reason. There was an arts council that gave money for you to do the stuff. So practically everybody had... They weren't big amounts of money, but practically everybody had a bit of something. Mm -hmm. Anybody who had any, who was any good at anything would get a little bit of money or a big bit of money and then a little bit of money after that. And they could survive. And then we had teaching. So we all had part-time teaching and you didn't have to work full-time. You didn't have to do these. You did a day or two a week, but you weren't permanently employed. So you could be also self-employed. It makes a huge difference yeah. so that you could actually then do your own work and you didn't have as much administration to do like crazy amount, amount of admin that they now have to do, which we didn't have to do then. But then you'd got students who could afford to be there and they didn't have to work. What you began to see in the 90s was people coming in absolutely worn out, half asleep because they'd been working in a bar at night. And then you started getting art schools at Say Hull, which had the first Sonic arts course um, with, I think Robert Warby was teaching there. The whole of the whole arts thing went when the fees, when the fee thing began to happen. And they, places like Hull wouldn't get a lot of foreign intake. And then you also saw a whitening, you know, where we'd had in the eighties, you, you had more black students, more Asian students, all mixed in. It was much more like what you see out on the street. And then suddenly you got this blanching. Even at Goldsmiths, I have to say, there were a lot of people with fair hair. So we had a lot of people from Scandinavian countries. And um, I remember having a terrible time trying to defend a, a, a working, she was a working class woman. She'd had difficulty with housing and she was a lesbian. She'd got a child really having a tough her work was really good and she was having such a hard time and most of the people in on the on the visual arts course at goldsmiths it was so bourgeois it, it was certainly hard for 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 a working working class person um you know somebody who was really really struggling to make ends meet yeah. and living in a squat and all of that as opposed to somebody whose parents could pay for all their photographic work Outside and they could frame it and, and all of this. And, and they didn't have to do a part-time job at night. And stuff. So I, I think that time of after the Second World War where people had student grants and then, then you had these spaces 
which were funded. I mean, the co-op was funded by the GLA and by the British Film Institute. It had funding from the British Film Institute until it was forced against the wall in the, in 99. And it was all to do with finance that that mm. actually happened. So that something where you've got culture being funded, where you've got um, collectives being funded, because that's actually quite a, it's a, quite a good use of public money. You know, you, you invest in a camera, you can buy a camera you've, and those, that camera gets shared. Whereas now you, you just don't have those facilities. You don't have those collective facilities anymore. Mm. And then you don't have so many people doing the humanities at university anymore because it's not going to guarantee you a job when you get out. I just think it's absolutely terrible that students should be left with, you know, something which is worse than a mortgage at the end of their course. And the, the difficulty that puts, I think it's completely entirely wrong. And I think we did the, you know, politically, that rather messed things up. <laughs> And so the final question for Anna is how to enjoy experimental film. I think the way in which you present it is very important. And because I've presented so many um, programmes to students who've never heard of experimental film before, and always the classes that you do at the beginning where they might have an identifiable name like Man Ray or um, Fernand Roger or whatever, uh, or Marcel Duchamp. Something like, you'll get a full house just because they know they're supposed to come and see them. But um, it's much more difficult to get people to come and see the other things, the things they've not heard of. So when you're actually introducing those films, well, you don't necessarily, I think, I think um, what we did with, say, say uh, when we were doing the flux screenings, we did introductions to almost every programme. And the introduction would be, uh, with with a reading from a text written by a filmmaker. I, I think if you introduce a film, and I would say, say like if I had to introduce, if you have to introduce a film and you're in a film festival and there you're in a situation where the films, they're not going to be used to seeing, a film like Behind Closed Doors, for instance, would sit very uneasily in a film festival without an introduction. When I introduced Behind Closed Doors, I talked about how, your mind works with poetry and how you how images come together in a short poem. And, and sometimes it's a little bit like a riddle. A poem is like a riddle. Um, and you have these suggestions of images mm. in your mind. And then you might puzzle how they fit together. Film's no different. Now, I, just saying something as simple as that, of making a comparison to how the mind works. And, and after all, you've always had dance, you've always had opera, you've always had a visual presentation sometimes. It might be 24, four hours long, sometimes it might be only a quarter of an hour or two minutes if it's a song. And, uh, and so yeah, I was saying that the film comes from that. It's just that you're using the same part of the brain that you would use for any of these other things. It's just that you're using it with film. When we were in Budapest, um, we were showing cling film and uh, I was showing with Jan Bovet, Sida uh, Ids was a very, very good short to put on with King Film because it has that political jabbing thing that Kling Film doesn't quite have, apart from the little 
WHO serious yeah, the bit at the text at the beginning. It doesn't have that sort of political stuff. Whereas so it's brilliant to be shown with, with Cedar Ids. And Cedar Ids is entirely to do with colour. The way it's getting its political message across is with flashes of colour. And I have the flashing colour of cling film, uh, in cling film of the mates packets. And, the, and all of the scenes in cling film are painted in this, in this room that I'm in. We painted the walls and did cracks with charcoal on the walls. And each of the scenes in cling, cling film, apart from the, the um, apart from the lift scene, is filmed in this room. And we just painted it different ways and had matching condom packets to it. So, so the whole way through the film, you've got this color layer. And when we introduced the film like that, and you talked about having been a painter, and so you can't help but think about things in that way. Mm. Um, then people saw, God knows what they didn't see. They saw so much more in that film than they would if you hadn't have just suggested that to them. So I, that's the best way of introducing an experimental film. And I've never had a problem, ever. I've only ever had somebody once at the screening that we did of the cut-ups. And then this guy came up to him and he said, I have to be terribly sorry, but I was dead. He served all that beer in front of crack because we, we served beer. And he drank so much beer that he had to go to the loo. So he apologised for having left the room, but he was the only one. <laughs> you, you get this kind of dialogue with the film when you just tell somebody a little bit about it. If you've enjoyed what you've heard, don't forget to subscribe. We'll be back with more very soon. My thanks to Anna for being so generous with her time and, of course, for allowing the inclusion of clips in this episode. Thanks also to Gabriel Ness, who composed the music for this show, and of course to you for listening. Don't forget to tune in again soon.